Why don't we take hold of our Bibles and last week we finished up Luke chapter 21 so that would have us in Luke chapter 22 verse 1 this morning as we continue our study verse by verse through Luke's gospel. So Luke chapter 22 and while we're turning there if you need a Bible the guys in the aisles have a couple copies of the scripture so I encourage you to take one make sure you can check what I'm saying is true don't take my word for it study God's word for yourself so if you need a copy of the scriptures just let them know and they'll be happy to give one to you and this morning as we begin Luke 22 we're going to begin in verse 1 and we're going to go down as far as verse 13 together and if you're turned there together with me would you stand with me out of respect for the word of God as I read our passage for this morning's study Luke 22 beginning in verse 1 it says, Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called Passover. And the chief priests and scribes sought how they might kill him, that is Jesus, for they feared the people. And then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. So he went his way and conferred with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him a sum of money. So he promised and sought opportunity to betray him into the into betray them in the absence, excuse me, of the multitude. And then came the day of unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John saying, "Go and prepare the Passover that we may eat." So they said to him, "Where do you want us to prepare?" And he said to them, Behold, when you've entered a city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house which he enters. And then you shall say to the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And then he will show you a large furnished upper room. There make ready. So they went and they found it just as he had said to them. And they prepared the Passover. Father, we ask that you would help us now as we open the word of God, that you would just open our hearts and minds to be able to receive what you would say to us from your word this morning. Lord, we came here to worship you and we've sang to praise you. And Lord, as we open your word now, we want to continue in an attitude of worship by just inviting you to speak into our hearts as the creator of our souls, Lord. We long to hear what you would want to say to us personally, and we believe you're a God who loves us and speaks to us. So we ask, Lord, bless your word, that by your Holy Spirit's ministry, you'd speak powerfully and personally to each one of our hearts and give us an ear to hear what you want to say to us this morning. We ask in Jesus' wonderful name, and everyone said... Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Have you ever noticed before as sometimes things begin to move in a particular direction, whether it's maybe at your place of work, things start to go in a particular direction, or maybe it's with the family that you're a part of, things start to move in a particular direction, or some group that you're a part of, that as things start to go down the course of a particular direction, that typically people can either do one of two things. That as things are going in a particular direction, people can either be resistant to what's happening and they can have a very uncooperative spirit or quite the opposite, people can have a submissive heart and a very cooperative spirit with what's taking place and the direction things are going. And usually there's one of two reactions. Either people are kind of uncooperative and resistant to the thing, or we can be submissive and cooperative in our spirit to what's taking place. And the same is true in relation to spiritual life. The same is true in relation to following Jesus and being in cooperation with the will of God for us. In fact, in our text this morning, I think you have a clear picture, a snapshot of people doing both those things. You have people in this passage who are clearly refusing Jesus and resisting his plans in a very uncooperative manner to the extreme. That's, of course, a picture of the religious leaders and Judas Iscariot. It's very clear they're in complete rejection and resistance of Jesus and the will of God. 
By the same token, in the same set of scriptures, we also find people who are submitted to Jesus. They're wanting to follow Jesus' plan. They're wanting to cooperate with the Lord's program and with what Jesus is doing at this time. And I think it's a good lesson because, quite honestly, our hearts have the capacity to be in both camps. And I hope that we would be in the latter camp of being cooperative and submissive to what the Lord is doing. Notice with me back in the first verse as the account opens up, Luke records for us, it says, The feast of unleavened bread drew near, and Luke tells us, which is called Passover. Now, as we've been saying in our recent studies, we are very close now to the crucifixion and the death of Jesus Christ upon the cross. Jesus who will become the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world once for all. And because of that, Luke now identifies for his predominantly Gentile readers, and Luke's gospel was written predominantly to speak to the non-Jewish person, which the Bible just calls a Gentile, anyone who's of non-Jewish descent. Matthew's gospel written to really focus in to speak to the Jews, the people of Israel. Luke writes his gospel with the Gentile reader in mind. So Luke, because of that, takes the time to identify the historical setting of the events at this time. As he's writing, he tells us it was the time of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, the Feast of Unleavened Bread is basically a week-long feast or holiday celebration the Jews participated in that came directly after the day of Passover itself. Uh, these two events, the Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover, are purposely linked together. Again, many a times that entire eight-day span from the day of Passover, which then goes right into the week of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, many a times those events are just called Passover or the Feast of Passover. The terms are kind of interchangeable, you'll see as you study the Bible. Because they're joined together, a lot of times the Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover are referred to as the same thing and terms are used interchangeably for them. That's what Luke is saying here, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, he says, which is also called Passover. Again, there were many feasts and holidays that the Jews celebrated. You can read of them in the Old Testament. There were multiple feasts that they would participate in. Uh, but yet this particular feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread or Passover, was one of the three major feasts for the Jews. It was one of the three mandatory feasts that all Jewish males were required to go to Jerusalem to participate in. Deuteronomy 16 verse 16 says, Three times a year all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses, that is Jerusalem, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which we have here, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Tabernacles. So, Three times a year at least, people would cease altogether from their everyday labors, their works and business, their endeavors out in their fields, and they would go up to Jerusalem. The males were required to be in attendance. Typically, if they could, they would bring their wives and families, and, and they would make a pilgrimage, and they would go up to Jerusalem. They would cease from their labors for a week. Three times a year they did this, and they would go up to Jerusalem, and they would celebrate and worship God, and they would spend time together and it was a great time no doubt of reunion they would see one another again as they would come together and because of that the population at Jerusalem and the surrounding towns and districts around Jerusalem would swell incredibly during that time uh, historians say that during the days of Jesus it's possible that there were upwards to two million people condensing into and around Jerusalem at this time so you picture this little city of Jerusalem with its current inhabitants and all of a sudden at one of the feasts like this it just swells in population. It's extremely crowded as people are there for that week and Passover itself, remember, was an extremely special feast to be celebrated, an extremely special holiday to be celebrated among the Jews. Because remember, Passover, from the Old Testament, Passover celebrated and commemorated God's deliverance out of Egypt. When they were in bondage and slavery in Egypt, and God heard His people's cry while they were in bondage and slavery, and God heard their cry, and He sent to them a deliverer 
to come and to set them free from their bondage and slavery. And remember that what took place is two main things which they were commemorating is number one, it's called Passover because they remembered how when God brought his judgment against the Egyptians as he was about to deliver them out, his people, the death angel came through Egypt and remember God told them to sacrifice a lamb and to take the blood and to apply it to their doorposts and their lentils of the home that they lived in and when the death angel of judgment came through the place of Egypt wherever the blood of a sacrificial lamb was applied to a home he would pass over and the wrath of God would pass over that place and did not fall upon that family because of the blood of the sacrificial lamb that identified it and God's wrath passed over that. It also was a time, remember, they were delivered in great haste. They went out very quickly so they did not have time to use uh, any leaven for their bread to rise. So to this day, when Jews celebrate Passover, they remove all the leaven from their home. It's a part of the whole celebration. They take all the leaven out for the entire week. They make sure there's none in the home. And again, the idea is life was to be unleavened in remembrance of what God did in that day. And leaven in the Bible is always a type or a picture of sin. So it's a picture of the removal of sin, the turning away from sin. And they also, during Passover, of course, would take the lamb the sacrificial lamb now this isn't done today because the sacrificial system no longer exists in israel there is no shedding of blood anymore but again the bible tells us without the shedding of blood there's no remission of sins but up until the days when the temple was destroyed they would take the passover lamb it was prescribed in the old testament law they would bring it into their care for a time and then on the set day the 14th day of the first month they would then sacrifice that lamb and the blood was a reminder to them of what the Bible teaches that without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sins there's no forgiveness and it was that shedding of blood that initially back at the first Passover when they were delivered out was the shedding of blood that allowed God's wrath to pass over their life as sinful people before a holy God now of course we know the Bible teaches us in the New Testament that Jesus ultimately fulfills this Passover. That he is the Passover Lamb of God. As John said, he is the Lamb of God who once for all takes away the sin of the world. And that's why Jesus, when he suffered and died for us, it is his shed blood as the innocent Passover Lamb that must be applied to my life and to your life as a sinful person before a holy God. And when God sees the covering of the blood of Jesus applied to my life by my faith in him as the lamb of God who died for me in my place, the wrath of God passes over my life. I'm just as sinful and guilty as everyone else. But God sees my life under the covering of the blood of Jesus because I've embraced him by faith as my savior and as the lamb of God. Well, that makes then verse two all the more interesting what Passover commemorated the sacrifice of a lamb because verse 2 says the chief priests and the scribes notice sought it says how they might kill Jesus for they feared the people now we've been seeing as we've been going through Luke's gospel how the religious leaders animosity for Jesus has been growing and growing their hatred is so strong now it tells us, not that they're just trying to rid of themselves of his presence or push him away out into the wilderness or shut him down and humiliate him before the people with tough questions. The Holy Spirit tells us now the religious leader's intention is they are seeking how they might kill Jesus. At a moment when they should be focusing on worshiping God, their hearts have gone so far off course and off track spiritually, they're now preoccupied with how to kill the Son of God. Their hearts have completely veered off course to an incredible extent. The problem they're dealing with, Luke tells us, is that the people love Jesus. The common people adored Jesus. They, they felt comfortable around him. They realized who he was. They wanted to hear his teaching. So the religious leader's challenge is they realize if they try and murder Jesus or do this publicly in any way that anyone would be aware, that they would have a tremendous uprising of the people. They lose their popularity and the people would turn against them and they didn't want to lose their positions or their religious popularity. 
So they're now looking for a, a subtle, crafty way, a sneaky way, whereby they might do their dirty deed, if you would, but they want to do it in a way whereby their scheme won't be uncovered. So they're looking for a way now to put Jesus to death and get rid of him, but they got to do it in a sneaky way because they feared the people's response. Now, please take note of this. They did not possess the fear of God, but yet it says, notice verse 2, they feared the people. They did not have the fear of God in their life, but they feared people. And can I just say this morning, listen, that is always a major character problem. When there is the absence of the fear of God in someone's life, but the presence of the fear and concerns of other people instead, that is always a course towards major problems and indicates our heart is totally out of alignment spiritually. And it usually leads to making bad life choices and especially poor spiritual and eternal choices. Again, two times in the book of Proverbs, we have repeated the same proverb given to us. Proverbs 29:25 says, The fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. See, listen, it is dangerous, extremely dangerous, when a person is very concerned about the responses and reactions and acceptance and approval of people, but yet they have no concern about what God thinks. That's a dangerous place to be. When a person is very concerned about what everyone else thinks and how they'll accept and approve, but they have no care or concern what is right before God, that's a really scary place to be. That's where these religious leaders were. They didn't fear God. Obviously, they're ready to kill a son. But they feared the people. And it shows how out of alignment their heart was. The religious leaders, they've refused and rejected Jesus, resisted him, and now they're looking to kill him. And watch what happens. The devil opens a door wide open for their evil intention in their hearts. Verse 3 says, Then... Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. So he went his way, conferred with the chief priests and the captains how he might betray him to them. And they were glad, and they agreed to give him money. So he promised and sought opportunity to betray, betray Jesus to them in the absence of the multitude. So notice, whenever people begin pursuing a path, of rejecting the Lord. When a person begins to go down a path of rejecting the Lord, Satan, I tell you this, listen, Satan will gladly open the door of opportunity if that's the course you want to go down. He will gladly comply. In the same way God opens doors for us to follow his will, the devil would more than gladly open any door of opportunity when we want to walk in disobedience. The book of Jonah is a perfect picture of that. Jonah wanted to disobey the Lord and do the opposite of what God called him to do. And he went down and he found a ship heading exactly the direction that he himself was wanting to go. And I'm sure he could have jumped. Well, look at that. Imagine that. It's an open door. Maybe this must be the right thing. Well, do you think the devil can't open a door? Do you think the devil is not going to want to create an opportunity to encourage us to be drugged down into the pit of hell with him? These religious leaders and Judas himself at this point are pursuing a path of rejecting the Lord and Satan gladly opens the doorway wide open at this point. We get the account here of how Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, it says, went, conferred with the religious leaders, devised a plan how he might betray Jesus to them in this crafty way. They make an agreement regarding this for a sum of money. The other accounts tell us for 30 pieces of silver. And they make this pact now that Judas would look for an opportunity in the absence of others to betray Jesus and turn him over into their hands to ultimately see him put to death. Now, what, would you agree, what a staggering, and if I can use this, eerie verse is verse 3. Look what it says. Then Satan entered Judas, who was one of the twelve. Then Satan entered Judas. Satan, who is the highest ranking, most powerful of all the fallen angelic beings that rebelled against God. Satan, the devil himself, it says, entered Judas. He entered him. Listen, the Bible teaches 
that it is possible for a person not just to be influenced by or oppressed or afflicted by or hassled by a demonic and unclean spirit, but the Bible says it is actually possible for a person to become possessed, indwelt, inhabited by a demon or some type of unclean spirit. The Bible teaches that. The Bible makes it very evident in multiple places that an unclean, evil, demonic spirit can enter in and reside inside a person whereby that demonic spirit actively influences and directs and controls a person's thoughts and their behavior and their speech and begins to rule over them with a spiritual influence. And here, please note in verse 3, don't just gloss over it. Here it does not just speak of a demon possessing someone generally. This speaks to us about the personage of the devil himself entering into Judas at this point and possessing him. To me, what is even more challenging beyond that is the second half of verse 3. That it says that Satan entered Judas, and this is harder for me to swallow, who was numbered among the 12 disciples. It's hard enough to read Satan entered somebody, but to read that Satan entered one of the 12 disciples of Jesus, one of these 12 selected men who had the privilege to personally travel around with Jesus, to personally spend time with him, to minister with him. Uh, Judas, who clearly had an opportunity to be exposed to everything about the life and ministry of Jesus, but yet clearly we see here all the time Judas was never sincerely a follower of Jesus. He spent time with Jesus. He spent time with the followers of Jesus. He even actively participated, we know, in the ministry of Jesus. He was involved in all the experiences and everything that took place, yet all the while in his heart, he never truly surrendered in here to Jesus. He never truly embraced Jesus in a personal way for himself in his own condition spiritually, Jesus was never lured to Judas. And think about what we know about him. Again, it tells us that he was one of the 12 disciples. And please consider, just consider what it meant to be one of the 12 disciples with Jesus for those three and a half years before he died, to spend time with him. Judas, like Matthew and the other disciples, Peter and John, Judas had close and constant and continual exposure to the teachings of Jesus, to the life of Jesus, to his miracles, to his ministry for three years. This guy heard firsthand every teaching of Jesus, his public teachings, his private unrecorded teachings because you know there were times when he shared with the disciples things that we don't even have recorded for us in the Bible. He heard every single teaching Jesus ever gave publicly, privately. He saw firsthand with his eyes every single miracle Jesus did firsthand right before his eyes. Blind people's eyes being opened, crippled people getting up and walking. Jesus did miracles right before him. He participated in the ministry of Jesus. He was engaged in doing the same things as the other disciples, interacting personally, intimately with Jesus every day. He looked into Jesus' eyes face to face. He got to see his heart clearer than anyone else that wasn't walking around with him every single day for three years. He listened to Jesus pray and talk to the Father firsthand. He, he, he saw things that we can only begin to fathom. And yet still, it's Judas we read this happen to. Hard to fathom that. We know as well, the Bible tells us that Judas was actually the treasurer among Jesus' ministry team. It tells us in multiple places in the Gospels that he held the money box. And, and again, to me, it's probably just very simply he was given that role because he probably was a very talented man. He probably had great organizational skills. 
He was probably very astute in business and was just someone who seemed like a good, responsible personality and a financial manager. So he was the right person. Apparently, he seemed like the right one to give the books to and, and to manage the, the treasury of the ministry of Jesus as they went around. It says he carried the money box and he managed the books, the ideas, the records, the financial affairs. Sadly, the Bible says that he also was a thief and he was stealing from the Lord's ministry. It tells us in John chapter 12 that when Mary came into the house where Jesus was and anointed him with spikenard in this incredible lavish act of worship and she poured out this expensive perfume upon Jesus to just lavish and show her love towards him. It tells us in John chapter 12 verse 4 to 6 but one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who would betray him when he saw what Mary did, he said, why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? That sounds pretty spiritual, doesn't it? Oh, we could we could use this as a waste. We could use all this money to feed all the poor people in Jerusalem. But the Bible tells us this, that Judas said this not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and he had the money box and he used to take what was put in it. He was just a crook, but he played a real good part spiritually in the ministry with everyone else that was around him. And, and no one even recognized it. Again, Judas was engaged in the activities of spiritual life, but apparently he never embraced any of those things personally in his heart. But yet he was actively engaged. In fact, let me go so far to say, other than Jesus who knows everything because he's God, not one of the disciples up to the incident of the betrayal itself ever suspected Judas. You know, it wasn't like the guy had one of those, you know, greasy black mustaches and a little black cape hanging out the back of his robe and, <laughs> you know, that's not the case. Nobody suspected Judas. When, they, when Jesus said, somebody's going to betray me because he knew, they were, is it, is it I? Peter was always failing. It's probably me. You're probably right, Peter. I bet it is. You, know, you seem to have a record for that. Nobody suspected Judas. He seemed to be spiritual and following the Lord like everyone else. Can I say something this morning? What a powerful, sobering reminder that a person can be so close to the things of the Lord and yet never sincerely have a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ. A person can be involved with the Lord's people. He can be around the things of the Lord. He can be exposed to teachings and teachings and teachings. He can see the miracles of God doing incredible things around people's lives. And he can be participating in the activities, even in ministry and engage in all kinds of things, and yet never experience any spiritual reality in their own heart personally. Within, they never have a genuine relationship with the Lord. There are people who live among God's people, who claim the name of Christ, who profess to be a Christian, who carry their Bibles, I don't doubt, who say prayers, I don't doubt that some stand in pulpits. And yet they do not have a genuine relationship with Jesus. That's sobering. That's scary. They've never been born again. They've never truly surrendered to Jesus Christ. That is an incredibly dangerous place to be. To be so engaged, so involved, and yet never having in a personal way truly embraced for yourself, yeah, Jesus, save me of my sin. I'm a sinner. I deserve hell. Jesus, save me. And Jesus, take control of my life because I'm making a mess. And they've never come to that place. They can quote off Bible verses. I'm sure Judas could probably rattle off more verses than any of us. He heard them all. But he never had that experience in his own heart. Listen, that is why Jesus said, and may I say to a religious leader in John chapter 3, you must be born again. You must be born again. This is how we enter into spiritual life and begin a spiritual life in a relationship with God. We don't begin in relationship with God. The Bible says we're born sinful. We just prove it as we live. We're born sinful, separated from God, dead spiritually in the trespasses of our sins. And there must come a time, just like a person doesn't just show up on the earth by a stork dropping them off, there's a birth process. The only way you enter into this life is you're born physically. The only way you experience spiritual life is there must come a time when you have a spiritual birth, 
when we are born spiritually. When we come to that place whereby we have a conversion moment and allow the Holy Spirit to enter inside of us, where we recognize for the first time who we are, sinners who've fallen short of the glory of God, but yet we realize what God did for us in Jesus. That what John 3, the same chapter says in verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes on him shall not perish but have everlasting life and that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world might be saved through him. And see, it's when we as a human being come to that understanding personally, we come to the conviction in our own heart and the grips and the reality of our own guilt in our conscience before a holy God for our personal mistakes, thought, word, and deed that we all commit. And yet we realize, oh God, I'm a sinner before you, but thank you so much that you loved me enough that you sent your son Jesus to live the perfect life that I can't live and that he stepped into my place and died on the cross as the sacrifice, took the pain, took all the punishment that I deserve instead and rose from the dead so that he could be a savior and that he could save me. And that all I have to do, Jesus says, whoever believes. I don't got to work for anything. We can't work for anything. But we understand who Jesus is and there comes that time where I choose, as you must choose, to repent of our sin and to say, I want to turn away from this. And we turn to Jesus and say, Jesus, would you save me? Would you forgive my sins? Save me. You are the Savior. And we surrender to his lordship. And at that moment, the Holy Spirit enters inside of us and indwells us, the Spirit of God. And then we're, what the Bible says, born again. In the same way the devil entered Judas and took control, the Spirit enters inside of us, the Spirit of God, and now we become conscious of spiritual things. See, you, you can't just rub Jesus and rub religious stuff on you and think, well, if I, if I rub it on me long enough, if I rub the Advil and you know, Motrin on my head long enough, the headache will go away. No, you're just going to get an orange head and waste your time. And nothing, but you have to get it in on the inside. You can't just be exposed to Jesus. You have to encounter Jesus. And then we're born again, the Bible says. That's how that spiritual birth process takes place. And then we come under the control and influence of the Spirit of God as a genuine child of God. We have a born-again experience where the Lord takes control and he gives us the power by his Spirit to have a relationship with Jesus and to live for God and serve God instead of serving sin and self that we naturally tend to do. That's why Ephesians 1 tells us this. Listen to Ephesians 1, verse 13 and 14. It says, In Jesus you trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom having also believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. See, the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us the moment you get saved and you're born again, the Holy Spirit comes on the inside. You're awakened now to spiritual things and the lights go on, as it were, spiritually and you're cognizant of the spiritual realm, just like when a baby comes out, it then becomes cognizant of the temporal, physical realm around it. And we recognize, oh, and we see, and the Bible says the Holy Spirit is also God's guarantee. It's the down payment, if you would, that God's going to finish his plan in your life so that when you breathe your last breath, you don't have to wonder, I hope I make it to heaven. Well, the Bible says, not me, the Bible says, you can know that you're going to heaven because the Holy Spirit is God's down payment. If you've accepted my son, my spirit's inside of you, your body will dissipate and your spirit, which is redeemed and now joined with mine, absent from the body, instantly present with the Lord, drawn right into his presence. And that Holy Spirit, the Bible also says, interesting notice, it says we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. That's important because the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit not only guarantees our eternal destination, but he is who protects us from any spiritual, if I could use the term, any spiritual infiltration. The Bible makes it very clear that if we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, God doesn't timeshare, okay? The Bible does not teach, and nor should we believe, that a Christian can be demon-possessed. The Bible says he who is in us is greater than he who is in this world. And if you are sealed with the Spirit of God, the devil's not going to break that seal. 
He doesn't have the power to overrule that. You know, a Christian demon-possessed is unscriptural. It's, it's, the Bible does not teach that. You're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now, that being said, if a person is not born again, please hear me, if a person is not born again, they are vulnerable. They're vulnerable to any spiritual influence until the Spirit of God enters in and seals them and protects them and gives them that guarantee and that assurance. That's why Peter tells us, make your calling and election sure. Be sure. Make sure that you're sure. And you're the only one that knows that. You and God. No one else can know someone's heart. But we look at this and you know, it's staggering. We think, what happened to Judas? It's hard to imagine. How could this guy, one of the twelve, how could he do this? How could it be possible that he could actually reject Jesus. Well, again, reality of free will. God gives us choice. He doesn't force us. He knocks on the door, but the doorknob's on the inside to open the door and choose to receive Jesus or to leave the door shut and say no. And Jesus, though he's God, he's a gentleman because he wants a love relationship. And he wants us to genuinely realize the importance of our need for him. And here's the reality of free will. It seems Judas was somewhat interested in following Jesus, but probably for the wrong reasons. It seems that Judas, when you look at him as a whole, was probably hoping that Jesus would establish the kingdom immediately on the earth, set up his rulership, and Judas was no doubt one of these characters. He was positioning himself, hoping when Jesus sets up the kingdom, I'm going to get a high rank and position. And so he's positioning himself hoping for this, and then Jesus starts talking about surrendering and submitting to suffering and dying and being put to death. And when Judas starts to hear this, all of a sudden now his intentions and desires are not being fulfilled by Jesus anymore, and now his heart feels betrayed. What do you mean? You're not going to bring this kingdom program? What do you, and now what's being betrayed? His preferences. His own personal desires are being betrayed. So he feels betrayed by Jesus, so ultimately that leads him to a place to turn his heart away from Jesus in his selfish intentions and because his plan was not going to unfold and ultimately it leads to him totally going south and shipwrecking and self-destroying ultimately we know even in suicide after he betrays the Lord. Please note, even though Satan, it says, entered Judas and persuaded Judas, that in no way removes the personal responsibility of what Judas did. The Bible is very clear. God knew what would happen in advance because God's sovereign, yet it also declares in many passages how Judas was personally responsible and he willingly chose to do this. In fact, if you just look at the way verse 4 through 6 reads, notice, so he went his way. He conferred with the chief priests how he might betray him. And they agreed to give him money and he promised and sought opportunity to betray him. Again, notice, he went his own way. It, this was a conscious decision that he made. It was a responsibility on his end. And why did he do it? Because two reasons. Things did not go his way and because he was greedy for personal gain. Those are the real two big contributors to Judas heading south in the way that he did. Things did not go his way. He wanted to control and he wasn't going to have anything else. And he was greedy for gain. He got a sum of money for doing what he's doing. Can I just say this? Though I do not think we can do the same thing that Judas did personally, because those events have already taken place historically, but I will tell you this, I think we need to be cautious and careful because we all have the capacity in these hearts of ours to reject and betray Jesus in different ways in our own lives. And a lot of times it's for the same reasons. That many times things, you know, our self-will and wanting our own way, and we don't want to surrender to the way of Jesus. We want our own way. And sometimes the thing that gets us off course, again, is, is our hearts are misguided by greed and the desire for personal gain. And I tell you this, there are many people, many, many people that are unbelievers that do not receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, and though they understand, they hold off, they keep the door shut, for that very reason because they want their way. So they're not going to take Jesus' way because they want their way. And they're afraid of what they may somehow have to give up if somehow what they could gain is better than forgiveness of sins and peace and joy and, and hope of eternal life and as if somehow God won't bless them more in their life than if he's not involved in their life. But people reject Jesus for this. 
And many Christians tragically veer off course because of this, because if things don't go their way, they feel betrayed by Jesus. So they'll harden their heart and they get bitter at God. And Christians go off course because either they're pursuing maybe some greed for gain of something or things don't go their way and so they get angry at God and they feel betrayed by Jesus. Be careful. There's a little bit of Judas in me and you and we need to keep our hearts guarded against that. Well, verse 7 says, Then the day of unleavened bread came when the Passover must be killed. Again, Exodus 12 and Leviticus 23 tell us that's the 14th day now of the first month when they would put to death the sacrificial lamb. And verse 8 tells us that Jesus then sent Peter and John, two of his trusted disciples, saying, Go, prepare the Passover for us that we may eat. And they said to Jesus, Lord, where do you want us to prepare? Now take note of this. Here's a clear picture in Peter and John, two trusted disciples. Here's a clear picture of what a true follower of Jesus looks like. And that's simply this. They're desiring Jesus' direction in all that they do. They desire Jesus' direction in all they do. L look at verse 8 and 9 there. Jesus says, go prepare the Passover meal. Now, rather than just going off and doing what they think is best or what they prefer, or it's kind of a simple command. Notice, instead, in humility, they pause and they ask Jesus for further direction. They say, okay, Lord, but where do you want us to go and prepare the Passover meal. To me, this is insightful. The Lord had told them what to do, but they still wanted to know where Jesus wanted them specifically to go do it. This shows their hearts wanting to fully cooperate with the plans and purposes of Jesus. He said, go prepare the Passover meal. They knew what that meant, and they knew how to do that practically. They knew exactly what he was asking them to do. He knew what that, they knew what that involved. But they paused still in submission and said, Lord, we understand what we're supposed to do and we know how to do that. But this is your work, Lord. And, and you're asking us to do something out of service to you. So, Lord, where would you have us do what you're asking us to do? We know what to do, but where specifically would you have us to do such? What a good example because an important part of following Jesus Listen, an important part of following Jesus is constantly seeking direction from the Lord. In everything, everything, keep asking, keep seeking his direction. Lord, okay, I know what you told me what to do, but, but where? And sometimes in your life, you find that the Lord's going to give you an instruction. He's going to give you a command to do something. And you know what he's asked you to do. It's understandable, but I think it's wise to still pause and say, but Lord, I need, I need a little more direction. Can you refine that a little more? Can you give me a little bit more clarity so we can stay in cooperation with this plan? What the disciples did, take note, what they did in saying, Jesus, where do you want us to go? That was very critical because it allowed them to be in a private place that Judas did not know about so that Jesus could have time to give the upper room discourse to the disciples, John chapter 13 through 16, before he was betrayed. And the very fact that these two disciples cooperated with Jesus by asking further direction, they participated with what the Lord was doing by being in a quiet and private place for those beautiful events that take place. And Jesus, no doubt, was glad they asked. It's obvious he had a plan ready. Look at verse 10 through 12. It says, He answered them, Behold, when you've entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house which he enters. And you shall say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where's the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large furnished upper room and there make ready. So notice, as they ask Jesus for further direction, he tells them, Look at it. He tells them what to look for. He tells them what to do. He tells them where to go. He tells them what to expect to happen, what to say, exactly how to fulfill his request. It almost sounds, doesn't it, like Jesus prepared the whole thing before they got there. Because he did. Jesus told them everything that they needed to know in a sense so that they could follow through and then he sets them forth. A man with a pitcher when they went in the city, a man carrying a pitcher would have been very unusual. Women carried water in pitchers, men carried it in skin. So that would be very out of the ordinary when they went into the city and they saw a man holding a pitcher of water. That would be unusual and it would identify very easily who they were looking for. 
And can I just say, sometimes I think the things of the Lord are kind of quite obvious so that the Lord can help us identify a little more clearly what really he's doing. A lot of times I find the things of the Lord are uniquely different than the way things happen in the world. And sometimes I think Jesus almost does that because he knows how dense I am. So that, yes, that, that's me, Tony. <laughs> you see how uniquely different that is? That's not how things happen in the world. And, and I think the Lord graciously allows us to see that so that we can follow him when we sincerely want to follow him. I love verse 13, how it reads. It says, so they went and found it just as he said to them, and then they prepared the Passover. Look how this all unfolds. The disciples get guidance. They follow through, and as a result, they get to see firsthand the hand of Jesus directly involved in their everyday activities and affairs. How exciting is that? It says, they went and found it just as he said. Imagine walking that whole process out, going in, oh, there's the guy, and they go up to him, hey, uh, and he doesn't say anything, and he just starts walking away. Oh, he said to follow him. So they, they follow him, they get to the house, and the master comes out, can I help you? Should we say what he said? Yeah, he said to say it. You know, it, what it let's say it. And, and, and as they're doing the whole thing, and as they're experiencing the whole thing, that, wow, th this is exactly how he said it would be. And the wonderful thing to realize that Jesus knew what was ahead before they ever got there. And he still does for you and me too. That Jesus prepared everything down the road for them that they could have been concerned, worried, how will it work out? He took care of all of it before they ever got there. He put the right people in the right places and even prepared people's hearts so that this master of the house, when they said, uh, the master said we can use your room to uh, hold his dinner. And he said, Sure, his heart was already prepared to cooperate and the Lord does the same in our lives as we walk out his plans. I just love the way it says they went and found it just as Jesus said. And you know what? For you and I this morning, there's a wonderful element, isn't there? If you're a Christian, you know it. There's a wonderful element to the Christian life where as you walk by faith following Jesus, you just discover the hand of the Lord involved in your life. And it's an amazing thing. To see just like these disciples, he prepares things ahead, he lets us find them, he lets us perform them. It says that there are good works prepared beforehand, Ephesians 2.10, that we should walk in them. And as we walk out a relationship with Jesus, people say, oh, I don't, I don't want to be a Christian, that is so boring. That's such a boring, dry life. No, your life is boring and dry because you live by the whims of your flesh and emotions and desires and what everybody's going to think of you and say of you and, and because you fear man instead of fear. That's a boring life. That's a miserable life. I've been following Jesus since 1992. It's been like a thrill ride. It's been a thrill ride because I find and discover things as I Wow! Can you believe that? Jesus prepared that person so that they would be ready to, to, to you know, and, and he puts favor in people's hearts and you, and you walk in and you go, wow, it's almost like the Lord got here before we did. It's almost like he talked to this person before I talked to them. It's almost like he prepared the circumstances before I got to the circumstances. And, and we just discovered as we walk it out in our lives. You know, we also, as we follow Jesus, get to discover and experience him fulfilling and performing his word exactly like he said it would take place. And you know this is true if you follow Jesus, that we find that what he has said, it actually happens. It actually comes to pass. All the promises in God's word, we have them, we read them. And then as you walk in a relationship with the Lord, you see, amazing, exactly like he said it. It happened in my life. My God shall supply all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Oh, is that possible? And, and then you walk it out and, you, and, and the Lord works and, and you go, wow, it happened just like he said. I found it just like he said. It's true. Be anxious for nothing, but by prayer and petition, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And we're going through some traumatic thing, and we're terrified and anxious and worried. How are we going to handle this? And, and so we're committing to the Lord. All right, Lord, I'm going to trust you, and we pray and help us through this. And all of a sudden, the peace of, of God floods into your heart at a time when you should be falling apart at the seams. 
And the peace of God that bypasses all human understanding, it shocks you and shocks everyone, floods into your soul in the presence of God and the peace, and you go, wow, I found it's just like he said. Just like he said, every promise of God. And you know what, this morning, if you are here and you don't know Jesus Christ, listen, every truth and thing Jesus has said about eternal life and salvation, I promise you, if you respond to it, you will find it just as he said. And you won't have any regrets. Shall we stand together and pray? We'll sing a final worship song. Lord, thank you for your word. How it speaks into our lives in personal and direct ways. Lord, thank you that you wrote it and yet, Lord, because it's alive by your spirit, today, thousands of years later, Lord, it grips and cuts us in the heart in a way that we know nothing other than God himself could be speaking to us. And Lord, we want to be responsive to you as followers. Help us to be faithful, Lord, and to walk in cooperation with you. And Lord, for any here this morning who may not truly be born again, we pray your spirit would convince them of the need for that and that they would choose to respond and embrace you in this hour and in this day for their life. Before we sing a final song, I'm going to pray a simple prayer. And right where you're at, if you say, hey, I'm ready. I get it, I understand, and I'm ready to respond to Jesus. And you want to make sure, just like somebody led me in a prayer on July 12, 1992, you pray this simple prayer. If you believe these things in your heart, God will see your faith. And this morning, he'll forgive your sins and fill you with the Spirit, make you a child of God, and you'll have the assurance of eternal life. If you want to receive Jesus, just say, Dear God, I recognize I'm a sinful person. I'm sorry for all my sin against you. I believe Jesus died on the cross for me. And I believe Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus, save me this morning. Fill me with your spirit. I surrender to your lordship over my life. Help me to follow you. I receive your gift now. In Jesus' name, amen.